Black Clock Audio Tales 2019, Mary Shelley. Brought to you by BunnySlippers.com. Check out the brand new Dino Sound Slippers. Slippers make a roaring sound every three steps. Made with green, scaly-looking fabric that's actually a soft plush. Foam footbeds, non-slip grips on your soles so you don't slip around. One size fits most up to women's 10.5, men's 9. Footbed measures 10.5. Black Clock Audio Tales is a daily podcast that reads you a story, either a chapter or two at a time, or a couple of short stories, maybe some folklore. Join us in our exploration of old ghost stories, supernatural fiction, horror tales, folk tales, fantasy, gothic horror, weird fiction, cosmic horror. And don't forget to join us at the end of the month, every last Tuesday of the month, where we have The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, where you get to hear me talk in a lot more dumb voices than right now. Look for us wherever you look for podcasts, rate, review, and give us five, four, three, two, one stars. We don't like the one and two stars, but hey, if that's how you feel, you probably have a vendetta against us and don't know how to use the skip button. We are on the Instagram, the Facebook, and the Twitter as Black Clock Audio Tales. Or just Google us, Black Clock Audio Tales. There's no one else named that, otherwise we wouldn't name it this. Thank you, and let's get going with The Last Man by Mary Shelley. Recording by Eddie Winter. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume 1, Chapter 10. After these events, it was long before we were able to attain any degree of composure. A moral tempest had wrecked our richly freighted vessel, and we, remnants of the diminished crew, we were cast at the losses and changes which we had undergone. Idris passionately loved her brother, and could ill brook an absence whose duration was uncertain. His society was dear and necessary to me. I had followed up my chosen literary occupations with delight under his tutorship and assistance. His mild philosophy, unerring reason, and enthusiastic friendship were the best ingredient, the exalted spirit of our circle. Even the children bitterly regretted the loss of their kind playfellow. Deeper grief oppressed Perdita. In spite of resentment by day and night, she figured to herself the toils and dangers of the wanderers. Raymond, absent, struggling with difficulties, lost to the power and rank of the protectorate, exposed to the perils of war, became an object of anxious interest. Not that she felt any inclination to recall him, if recall must imply a return to their former union. Such return she felt to be impossible, and while she believed it to be thus, and with anguish regretted that so it should be, she continued angry and impatient with him, who occasioned her misery. These perplexities and regrets caused her to bathe her pillow with nightly tears, and to reduce her in person and in mind to the shadow of what she had been. She sought solitude and avoided us when in gaiety and unrestrained affection we met in a family circle. Lonely musings, interminable wanderings, and solemn music were her only pastimes. She neglected even her child, shutting her heart against all tenderness. She grew reserved towards me, her first and fast friend. I could not see her thus lost without exerting myself to remedy the evil. Remediless, I knew 
if I could not in the end bring her to reconcile herself to Raymond. Before he went, I used every argument, every persuasion, to induce her to stop his journey. She answered the one with a gush of tears, telling me that to be persuaded, life and the goods of life were a cheap exchange. It was not will that she wanted, but the capacity. Again and again, she declared, it were as easy to enchain the sea, to put reins on the wind's viewless courses, as for her to take truth for falsehood, deceit for honesty, heartless communion for sincere, confiding love. She answered my reasonings more briefly, declaring with disdain that the reason was hers, and until I could persuade her that the past could be unacted, that maturity could go back to the cradle, and that all that was could become as though it had never been, it was useless to assure her that no real change had taken place in her fate. And thus, with stern pride, she suffered him to go, though her very heart-strings cracked at the fulfilling of the act, which rent from her all that made life valuable. To change the scene for her, and even for ourselves, all unhinged by the cloud that had come over us, I persuaded my two remaining companions that it were better that we should absent ourselves for a time from Windsor. We visited the north of England, my native Oldswater, and lingered in scenes dear from a thousand associations. We lengthened our tour into Scotland, that we might see Loch Katrine and Loch Lomond. Thence we crossed to Ireland, and passed several weeks in the neighbourhood of Killarney. The change of scene operated to a great degree, as I expected. After a year's absence, Perdita returned in gentler and more docile mood to Windsor. The first sight of this place, for a time, unhinged her. Here every spot was distinct with associations now grown bitter. The forest glades, the ferny dells, the lawny uplands, the cultivated and cheerful country, spread around the silver pathway of ancient Thames, all earth, air, and wave took up one choral voice, inspired by memory, instinct with plaintive regret. But my essay towards bringing her to a saner view of her own situation did not end here. Perdita was still to a great degree uneducated. When first she left her peasant life and resided with the elegant and cultivated Evadne, the only accomplishment she brought to any perfection was that of painting for which she had a taste almost amounting to genius. This had occupied her in her lonely cottage, when she quitted her Greek friend's protection. Her palette and easel were now thrown aside. Did she try to paint, thronging recollections made her hand tremble, her eyes fill with tears. With this occupation she gave up almost every other, and her mind preyed upon itself almost to madness. For my own part, since Adrian had first withdrawn me from my selvatic wilderness to his own paradise of order and beauty, I had been wedded to literature. I felt convinced that, however, it might have been in former times, in the present stage of the world, no man's faculties could be developed, no man's moral principles be enlarged and liberal, without an extensive acquaintance with books. To me they stood in the place of an active career of ambition and those palpable excitements necessary to the multitude. The collation of philosophical opinions, the study of historical facts, the acquirement of languages, were at once my recreation and the serious aim of my life. I turned author myself. My productions, however, were sufficiently unpretending, 
they were confined to the biography of favourite historical characters, especially those whom I believed to have been traduced, or about whom clung obscurity and doubt. As my authorship increased, I acquired new sympathies and pleasures. I found another, and a valuable link to enchain me to my fellow creatures. My point of sight was extended, and the inclinations and capacities of all human beings became deeply interesting to me. Kings have been called the fathers of their people. Suddenly I became, as it were, the father of all mankind. Posterity became my heirs. My thoughts were gems to enrich the treasure-house of man's intellectual possessions. Each sentiment was a precious gift I bestowed on them. Let not these aspirations be attributed to vanity. They were not expressed in words, nor even reduced to form in my own mind, but they filled my soul, exalting my thoughts, raising a glow of enthusiasm, and led me out of the obscure path in which I had before walked into the bright noon-enlightened highway of mankind, making me, citizen of the world, a candidate for immortal honours, an eager aspirant to the praise and sympathy of my fellow-men. No one certainly ever enjoyed the pleasures of composition more intensely than I. If I left the woods, the solemn music of the waving branches, and the majestic temple of nature, I sought the vast halls of the castle, and looked over wide fertile England, spread beneath our regal mount, and listened the while to inspiring strains of music. At such times solemn harmonies or spirit-stirring airs gave wings to my lagging thoughts, permitting them, methought, to penetrate the last veil of nature and her God, and to display the highest beauty in visible expression to the understandings of men. As the music went on, my ideas seemed to quit their mortal dwelling-house. They shook their pinions, and began a fight, setting on the placid current of thought, filling the creation with new glory, and rousing sublime imagery that else had slept voiceless. Then I would hasten to my desk, weave the new-found web of mind in firm texture and brilliant colours, leaving the fashioning of the material to a calmer moment. But this account, which might as properly belong to a former period of my life as to the present moment, leads me far afield. It was the pleasure I took in literature, the discipline of mind I found arise from it, that made me eager to lead Perdita to the same pursuits. I began with light hand and gentle allurement, first exciting her curiosity, and then satisfying it in such a way as might occasion her at the same time that she half forgot her sorrows in occupation, to find in the hours that succeeded a reaction of benevolence and toleration. Intellectual activity, though not directed towards books, had always been my sister's characteristic. It had been displayed early in life, leading her out to solitary musing among her native mountains, causing her to form innumerous combinations from common objects, giving strength to her perceptions and swiftness to their arrangement. Love had come, as the rod of the master prophet, to swallow up every minor propensity. Love had doubled all her excellences, and placed a diadem on her genius. Was she to cease love, take the colours and odour from the rose, change the sweet nutriment of mother's milk to gall and poison, as easily might you wean Perdita from love? She grieved for the loss of Raymond with an anguish that exiled all smile from her lips, 
and trenched sad lines on her brow of beauty but each day seemed to change the nature of her suffering and every succeeding hour forced her to alter if so i may style it the fashion of her soul's mourning garb for a time music was able to satisfy the cravings of her mental hunger and her melancholy thoughts renewed themselves in each change of key and varied with every alteration in the strain my schooling first impelled her towards books and if music had been the food of sorrow the productions of the wise became its medicine the acquisition of unknown languages was too tedious an occupation for one who referred every expression to the universe within and read not as many do for the mere sake of filling up time but who was still questioning herself and her author moulding every idea in a thousand ways ardently desirous for the discovery of truth in every sentence she sought to improve her understanding mechanically her heart and dispositions became soft and gentle under this benign discipline after a while she discovered that amidst all her newly acquired knowledge her own character which formerly she fancied that she thoroughly understood became the first in rank among the terre incognite the pathless wilds of the country that had no chart erringly and strangely she began the task of self-examination with self-condemnation and then again she became aware of her own excellences and began to balance with just the scales the shades of good and evil i who longed beyond words to restore her to the happiness it was still in her power to enjoy watched with anxiety the result of these internal proceedings but man is a strange animal we cannot calculate on his forces like that of an engine and though an impulse draw with a faulty horsepower are what appears willing to yield to one yet in contempt of calculation the movement is not effected neither grief philosophy nor love could make perdita think with mildness of the dereliction of raymond she now took pleasure in my society towards idris she felt and displayed a full and affectionate sense of her worth she restored to her child in abundant measure her tenderness and care but i could discover amidst all her repinings deep resentment towards raymond and an unfading sense of injury that plucked from me my hope when i appeared nearest to its fulfilment among other painful restrictions she has occasioned it to become a law among us never to mention raymond's name before her she refused to read any communications from greece desiring me only to mention when they arrived and whether the wanderers were well it was curious that even little clara observed this law towards her mother this lovely child was nearly eight years of age formerly she had been a light-hearted infant fanciful but gay and childish after the departure of her father thought became impressed on her young brow children unadepts in language seldom find words to express their thoughts nor could we tell in what manner the late events had impressed themselves on her mind but certainly she had made deep observations while she noted in silence the changes that passed around her she never mentioned her father to Bedita. she appeared half afraid when she spoke of him to me and though i tried to draw her out on the subject and to dispel the gloom that hung about her ideas concerning him i could not succeed yet each fond post-day she watched for the arrival of letters 
knew the postmark, and watched me as I read. I found her often poring over the article of Greek intelligence in the newspaper. There is no more painful sight than that of untimely care in children, and it was particularly observable in one whose disposition had heretofore been mirthful. Yet there was so much sweetness and docility about Clara, that your admiration was excited, and if the moods of mind are calculated to paint the cheek with beauty and endow the emotions with grace, surely her contemplations must have been celestial, since every lineament was moulded into loveliness, and her motions were more harmonious than the elegant boundings of the fawns of her native forests. I sometimes expostulated with Perdita on the subject of her reserve, but she rejected my counsels, while her daughter's sensibility excited in her a tenderness still more passionate. After a lapse of more than a year, Adrian returned from Greece. When our exiles had first arrived, a truce was in existence between the Turks and Greeks, a truce that was asleep to the mortal frame, signal of renewed activity on waking, with the numerous soldiers of Asia, with all of warlike stores, ships and military engines that wealth and power could command, the Turks at once resolved to crush an enemy, which, creeping on by degrees, had from their stronghold in the Morea acquired Thrace and Macedonia, and had led their armies even to the gates of Constantinople, while their extensive commercial relations gave every European nation an interest in their success. Greece prepared for a vigorous resistance. It rose to a man and the women, sacrificing their costly ornaments, accoutred their sons for the war, and bade them conquer or die with the spirit of the Spartan mother. The talents and courage of Raymond were highly esteemed among the Greeks. Born at Athens, that city claimed him for her own, and by giving him the commander of her peculiar division in the army, the commander-in-chief only possessed superior power. He was numbered among her citizens, his name was added to the lists of Grecian heroes. His judgment activity and consummate bravery justified their choice. The Earl of Windsor became a volunteer under his friend. It is well, said Adrian, to prate of war in these pleasant shades, and with much ill-spent oil make a show of joy, because many thousands of our fellow creatures leave with pain this sweet air and natal earth. I shall not be suspected of being averse to the Greek cause. I know and feel its necessity. It is beyond every other a good cause. I have defended it with my sword, and was willing that my spirit should be breathed out in its defence. Freedom is of more worth than life, and the Greeks do well to defend their privilege unto death. But let us not deceive ourselves. The Turks are men. Each fibre, each limb, is as feeling as our own, and every spasm, be it mental or bodily, is as truly felt in a Turk's heart or brain as in a Greek's. The last action of which I was present was the taking of Blanquilla. The Turks resisted to the last, the garrison perished on the ramparts, and we entered by assault. Every breathing creature within the walls was massacred. Think you, amidst the shrieks of violated innocence and helpless infancy, I did not feel in every nerve the cry of a fellow-being. There were men and women, the sufferers before there were Mahometans, and when they rise turbanless from the grave, 
in what, except their good or evil actions, will they be any better or worse than we? Two soldiers contended for a girl, whose rich dress and extreme beauty excited the brutal appetites of these wretches, who, perhaps good men among their families, were changed by the fury of the moment into incarnated evils. An old man with a silver beard, decrepit and bald, he might be her grandfather, interposed to save her. The battle-axe of one of them clove his skull. I rushed to her defence, but rage made them blind and deaf. They did not distinguish my Christian garb, or heed my words. Words were blunt weapons, then. For while war cried havoc, and murder gave fit echo, how could I turn back the tide of evils, relieving wrong with milder cost of soothing eloquence? One of the fellows, enraged at my interference, struck me with his bayonet in the side, and I fell senseless. This wound will probably shorten my life, having shattered a frame weak of itself, but I am content to die. I have learnt in Greece that one man more or less is of small import, while human bodies remain to fill up the thin ranks of the soldiery, and that the identity of an individual may be overlooked, so that the muster-roll contain its full numbers. All this has a different effect upon Raymond. He is able to contemplate the ideal of war, while I am sensible only to its realities. He is a soldier, a general. He can influence the bloodthirsty war-dogs, while I resist their propensities vainly. The cause is simple. Burke has said that in all bodies, those who would lead must also in a considerable degree follow. I cannot follow, for I do not sympathise in their dreams of massacre and glory. To follow and to lead in such a career is the natural bent of Raymond's mind. He is always successful, and bids fair at the same time that he acquires high name and station for himself to secure liberty, probably extended empire, to the Greeks. Perdita's mind was not softened by this account. He, she thought, can be great and happy without me. Would that I also had a career! Would that I could freight some untried bark with all my hopes, energies, and desires, and launch it forth into the ocean of life, bound for some attainable point, with ambition or pleasure at the helm! but adverse winds detain me on shore. Like Ulysses, I sit at the water's edge and weep, but my nerveless hands can neither fill the trees nor smooth the planks. Under the influence of these melancholy thoughts, she became more than ever in love with sorrow. Yet Adrian's presence did some good. He at once broke through the law of silence observed concerning Raymond. At first she started from the unaccustomed sound. Soon she got used to it, and to love it, and she listened with avidity to the account of his achievements. Clara got rid also of her restraint. Adrian and she had been old playfellows, and now, as they walked or rode together, he yielded to her earnest entreaty, and repeated, for the hundredth time, some tale of her father's bravery, munificence, or justice. Each vessel in the meantime brought exhilarating tidings from Greece. The presence of a friend in its armies and councils made us enter into the details with enthusiasm, and a short letter now and then from Raymond told us how he was engrossed by the interests of his adopted country. The Greeks were strongly attached to their commercial pursuits, and would have been satisfied with their present acquisitions, had not the Turks roused them by invasion. The patriots were victorious. 
a spirit of conquest was instilled, and already they looked on Constantinople as their own. Raymond rose perpetually in their estimation, but one man held a superior command to him in their armies. He was conspicuous for his conduct and choice of position in a battle fought in the plains of Thrace, on the banks of the Hebrus, which was to decide the fate of Islam. The Mahometans were defeated and driven entirely from the country west of this river. The battle was sanguinary, the loss of the Turks apparently irreparable. The Greeks, in losing one man, forgot the nameless crowd, strode upon the bloody field, and they ceased to value themselves on a victory, which cost them Raymond. At the Battle of Macri he had led the charge of cavalry, and pursued the fugitives even to the banks of the Hebrus. His favourite horse was found grazing by the margin of the tranquil river. It became a question whether he had fallen among the unrecognised, but no broken ornament or stained trapping betrayed his fate. It was suspected that the Turks, finding themselves possessed of so illustrious a captive, resolved to satisfy their cruelty rather than their avarice, and fearful of the interference of England, had come to the determination of concealing forever the cold-blooded murder of the soldier they most hated and feared in the squadrons of the enemy. Raymond was not forgotten in England. His abdication of the protectorate had caused an unexampled sensation, and when his magnificent and manly system was contrasted with the narrow views of succeeding politicians, the period of his elevation was referred to with sorrow. The perpetual recurrence of his name, joined to most honourable testimonials in the Greek gazettes, gave up the interest he had excited. He seemed the favourite child of fortune, and his untimely loss eclipsed the world and showed forth the remnant of mankind with diminished lustre. They clung with eagerness to the hope held out that he might yet be alive. Their minister at Constantinople was urged to make the necessary perquisitions, and should his existence be ascertained, to demand his release. It was to be hoped that their efforts would succeed, and that though now a prisoner, the sport of cruelty and the mark of hate, he would be rescued from danger, and restored to the happiness, power and honour which he deserved. The effect of this intelligence upon my sister was striking. She never for a moment credited the story of his death. She resolved instantly to go to Greece. Reasoning and persuasion were thrown away upon her. She would endure no hindrance, no delay. It may be advanced for a truth that if argument or entreaty can turn any one from a desperate purpose, whose motive and end depends on the strength of the affections only, then it is right so to turn them, since their docility shows that neither the motive nor the end were a sufficient force to bear them through the obstacles attendant on their undertaking. If, on the contrary, their proof against expostulation, this very steadiness is an omen of success, and it becomes the duty of those who love them to assist in smoothing the obstructions in their path. Such sentiments actuated our little circle. Finding Perdita immovable, we consulted as to the best means of furthering her purpose. She could not go alone to a country where she had no friends, where she might arrive only to hear the dreadful news which must overwhelm her with grief and remorse. Adrian, whose health had always been weak, now suffered considerable aggravation of suffering from the effects of his wound. 
Idris could not endure to leave him in this state, nor was it right either to quit or take with us a young family for a journey of this description. I resolved at length to accompany Perdita. The separation from my Idris was painful, but necessity reconciled us to it in some degree. Necessity and the hope of saving Raymond and restoring him again to happiness and Perdita. No delay was to ensue. Two days after we came to our determination, we set out for Portsmouth and embarked. The season was May, the weather stormless. We were promised a prosperous voyage. Cherishing the most fervent hopes, embarked on the waste oceans, we saw with delight the receding shore of Britain, and on the wings of desire outspeeded our well-filled sails towards the south. The light curling waves bore us onward, and old ocean smiled at the fate of love and hope committed to his charge. It stroked gently its tempestuous plains, and the path was smoothed for us. Day and night the wind right aft gave steady impulse to our keel. Nor did rough gale or treacherous sand or destructive rock interpose an obstacle between my sister and the land which was to restore her to her first beloved, her dear heart's confessor, a heart within that heart. End of Volume 1, Chapter 10 Hey listeners, sorry for the interruption. More The Last Man coming up. But before that, I'd like to thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you and your suggestions for future episodes and topic ideas at facebook.com blackclockaudio. Help support the show by keeping it paywall-free by going to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate a buck or five to pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. We'll never ask you for your info or ask you to fill out a survey or just tell your friends about us. That's, that's all we ask. Do you have no cash to donate? That's fine. Neither do we. Help the show by sharing, rating, liking, or five-star giving wherever you get your podcasts from. You can always buy a cool shirt from pgttcm.threadless.com. And if you're wondering, hey, what's all this pgttcm stuff about? People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our monthly end-of-the-month show where we talk to Cthulhu Mythos writers, game designers, talk about various aspects of the Cthulhu Mythos, going from the Big Bang to the cooling of our sun, just the whole, whole, whole kit and caboodle, from the perspective of Earthlings, of course. Next month is going to be Ambrose Bitterbeers, one of my favorite weird fiction authors who also wrote Civil War tales and spooky dooky stories and also, you know, Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, that, that uh, story your 8th or ninth grade English teacher made you read? Yeah. Ambrose Spears, but we won't hold that against him. It's a good story, though. And in August, we're going to have anyone but Durleth Cthulhu Mythos, non-Durlethian mythos stories, and more about August Durleth himself and Arkham House Publishing, and pretty much, I don't know, kind of talk about why everyone makes fun of August Durleth, but without him... Uh, there's 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 some stuff that would be missing. September. Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Oh yeah, it's going to be all about the Brontes. And of course, we'll more than likely have Andrew Grace uh, talking about the Brontes again, because Andrew Grace likes to talk about the Brontes. 
October. Nothing but spooky stories that you can play all October long and, ooh, maybe even December and November when it's even darker and scarier. And November will be Old English Lit. So we're going to be doing stuff like Beowulf and stuff around that neck of the woods. Old English 800 Lit. It's that smooth, mellow lit that gives you more power. Old English 800 lit. And we don't have anything planned for December. But hey, if you want to pitch in your two cents or your, I don't know, uh, opinion, we can, we, we'll listen, we'll check it out. And if it's something that we can arrange, then it's something we can do. So your input is always appreciated. Thank you so much. And back to Mary Shelley's the last man. During this voyage, when on calm evenings we conversed on deck, watching the glancing of the waves and the changeful appearances of the sky, I discovered the total revolution that the disasters of Raymond had wrought in the mind of my sister. Were they the same waters of love which lately cold and cutting as ice, repelling as that, now loosened from their frozen chains? flowed through the regions of her soul in gushing and grateful exuberance. She did not believe that he was dead, but she knew that he was in danger, and the hope of assisting in his liberation, and the idea of soothing by tenderness the ills that he might have undergone, elevated and harmonized the late jarring element of her being. I was not so sanguine as she, as to the result of our voyage. She was not sanguine, but secure and the expectation of seeing the lover she had banished, the husband, friend, heart's companion from whom she had long been alienated, wrapped her senses in delight, her mind in placidity. It was beginning life again. It was leaving barren sands for an abode of fertile beauty. It was a harbour after a tempest, an opiate after sleepless nights, a happy waking from a terrible dream. Little Clara accompanied us. The poor child did not well understand what was going forward. She heard that we were bound for Greece, that she would see her father, and now for the first time she prattled of him to her mother. On landing at Athens we found difficulties increase upon us, nor could the storied earth or balmy atmosphere inspire us with enthusiasm or pleasure, while the fate of Raymond was in jeopardy. No man had ever excited so strong an interest in the public mind. This was apparent even among the phlegmatic English, from whom he had long been absent. The Athenians had expected their hero to return in triumph. The women had taught their children to lisp his name joined to thanksgiving. His manly beauty, his courage, his devotion to their cause made him appear in their eyes almost as one of the ancient deities of the soil descended from their native Olympus to defend them. When they spoke of his probable death and certain captivity, tears streamed from their eyes. Even as the woman of Syria sorrowed for Adonis, did the wives and mothers of Greece lament our English Raymond. Athens was a city of mourning. All these shows of despair struck Perdita with affright. With that sanguine but confused expectation which desire engendered while she was at a distance from reality, she had formed an image in her mind of instantaneous change, when she would set her foot on Grecian shores. She fancied that Raymond would already be free, 
and that her tender attentions would come to entirely obliterate even the memory of his mischance. But his fate was still uncertain. She began to fear the worst, and to feel that her soul's hope was cast on a chance that might prove a blank. The wife and lovely child of Lord Raymond became objects of intense interest in Athens. The gates of their abode were besieged. Audible prayers were breathed for his restoration. All these circumstances added to the dismay and fears of Perdita. My exertions were unremitted. After a time I left Athens and joined the army stationed at Kishan in Thrace. Bribery, threats and intrigue soon discovered the secret that Raymond was alive, a prisoner, suffering the most rigorous confinement and wanton cruelties. We put in movement every impulse of policy and money to redeem him from their hands. The impatience of my sister's disposition now returned on her, awakened by repentance, sharpened by remorse. The very beauty of the Grecian climate, during the season of spring, added torture to her sensations. The unexampled loveliness of the flower-clad earth, the genial sunshine and grateful shade, the melody of the birds, the majesty of the woods, the splendor of the marble ruins, the clear effulgence of the stars by night, the combination of all that was exciting and voluptuous in this transcending land, by inspiring a quicker spirit of life, and an added sensitiveness to every articulation of her frame, only gave edge to the poignancy of her grief. Each long hour was counted, and he suffers was the burthen of all her thoughts. She abstained from food, she lay on the bare earth, and by such mimicry of his enforced torments endeavoured to hold communion with his distant pain. I remembered in one of her harshest moments a quotation of mine had roused her to anger and disdain. Perdita, I had said, some day you will discover that you have done wrong in again casting Raymond on the thorns of life. When disappointment has sullied his beauty, when a soldier's hardships have bent his manly form, and loneliness made even triumph bitter to him, then you will repent, and regret for the irreparable change, will move in hearts all rocky now the late remorse of love. The stinging remorse of love now pierced her heart. She accused herself of his journey to Greece, his dangers, his imprisonment. She pictured to herself the anguish of his solitude. She remembered with what eager delight he had in former days made her the partner of his joyful hopes, with what grateful affection he received her sympathy in his cares. She called to mind how often he had declared that solitude was to him the greatest of all evils, and how death itself was to him more full of fear and pain when he pictured to himself a lonely grave. My best girl, he had said, relieves me from these fantasies. United to her, cherished in her dear heart, never again shall I know the misery of finding myself alone, even if I die before you, my Perdita. Treasure up my ashes till yours may mingle with mine. It is a foolish sentiment for one who is not a materialist, yet, methinks, even in that dark cell, I may feel that my inanimate dust mingles with yours, and thus have a companion in decay. In her resentful mood these expressions had been remembered with acrimony and disdain. They visited her in her softened hour, taking sleep from her eyes, all hope of rest from her uneasy mind. Two months passed thus when at last we obtained a promise of Raymond's release. Confinement and hardship had undermined his health. The Turks feared an accomplishment of the threats of the English government. 
if he died under their hands. They looked upon her recovery as impossible. They delivered him up as a dying man, willingly making over to us the rites of burial. He came by sea from Constantinople to Athens. The wind, favourable to him, blew so strongly in shore that we were unable, as we had at first intended, to meet him on his watery road. The watchtower of Athens was besieged by inquirers, each sail eagerly looked out for, till on the first of May the gallant frigate bore in sight, freighted with treasure more invaluable than the wealth which, piloted from Mexico, the vexed Pacific swallowed, or that was conveyed over its tranquil bosom to enrich the crown of Spain. At early dawn the vessel was discovered bearing in shore. It was conjectured that it would cast anchor about five miles from land. The news spread through Athens, and the whole city poured out at the gate of the Piraeus. Down the roads, through the vineyards, the olive woods and plantations of fig leaves towards the harbour. The noisy joy of the populace, the gaudy colours of their dress, the tumult of carriages and horses, the march of soldiers intermixed, the waving of banners and sound of martial music added to the high excitement of the scene, while round us reposed in solemn majesty the relics of ancient time. To our right the Acropolis rose high, spectatress of a thousand changes of ancient glory, Turkish slavery, and the restoration of dear-bought liberty. Tombs and cenotaphs were strewn thick around, adorned by every renewing vegetation. The mighty dead hovered over their monuments, and beheld in our enthusiasm, and congregated numbers a renewal of the scenes in which they had been the actors. Perdita and Clara rode in a close carriage. I attended them on horseback. At length we arrived at the harbour. It was agitated by the outward swell of the sea. The beach, as far as could be discerned, was covered by a moving multitude, which, urged by those behind toward the sea, again rushed back as the heavy waves with sullen roar burst close to them. I applied my glass, and could discern that the frigate had already cast anchor, fearful of the danger of approaching nearer to a lee shore. A boat was lowered. With a pang I saw that Raymond was unable to descend the vessel's side. He was let down in a chair, and lay wrapped in cloaks at the bottom of the boat. I dismounted and called to some sailors who were rowing about the harbour to pull up and take me into their skiff. Perdita at the same moment alighted from her carriage. She seized my arm. Take me with you, she cried. She was trembling and pale. Clara clung to her. You must not, I said. The sea is rough. He will soon be here. Do you not see his boat? The little bark to which I had beckoned had now pulled up. Before I could stop her, Perdita, assisted by the sailors, was in it. Clara followed her mother. A loud shout echoed from the crowd as we pulled out of the inner harbour, while my sister at the prow had caught hold of one of the men who was using a glass, asking a thousand questions, careless of the spray that broke over her, deaf, sightless to all except the little speck that, just visible on the top of the waves, evidently neared. We approached with all the speed six rowers could give, the orderly and picturesque dress of the soldiers on the beach, the sounds of exulting music, the stirring breeze and waving flags, the unchecked exclamations of the eager crowd, whose dark looks and foreign garb were purely eastern, the sight of temple-crowned rock, the white marble of the buildings glittering in the sun, 
and standing in bright relief against the dark ridge of lofty mountains beyond. The near roar of the sea, the splash of oars and dash of spray, all steeped my soul in a delirium, unfelt, unimagined in the common course of common life. Trembling, I was unable to continue to look through the glass, with which I had watched the motion of the crew when the frigate's boat had first been launched. We rapidly drew near, so that at length the number and forms of those within could be discerned. Its dark sides grew big, and the splash of its oars became audible. I could distinguish the languid form of my friend, as he half raised himself at our approach. Perdita's questions had ceased. She leaned on my arm, panting with emotions too acute for tears. Our men pulled alongside the other boat. As a last effort, my sister mustered her strength, her firmness. She stepped from one boat to the other, and then with a shriek she sprang towards Raymond, knelt at his side, and gluing her lips to the hand she seized, her face shrouded by her long hair, gave herself up to tears. Raymond had somewhat raised himself at our approach, but it was with difficulty that he exerted himself even thus much. With sunken cheek and hollow eyes, pale and gaunt, how could I recognize the beloved of Perdita? I continued awestruck and mute. He looked smilingly on the poor girl. The smile was his. A day of sunshine falling in a dark valley displays its before-hidden characteristics. And now this smile, the same with which he first spoke love to Perdita, with which he had welcomed the perfectorate, playing on his altered countenance, made me in my heart's core feel that this was Raymond. He stretched out to me his other hand. I discerned the trace of manacles on his bared wrist. I heard my sister's sobs, and thought happier women who can weep, and in a passionate caress disburthened the oppression of their feelings. Shame and habitual restraint hold back a man. I would have given worlds to have acted as in days of boyhood, have strained him to my breast, pressed his hand to my lips, and wept over him. My swelling heart choked me. The natural current would not be checked. The big rebellious tears gathered in my eyes. I turned aside, and they dropped in the sea. They came fast and faster. Yet I could hardly be ashamed, for I saw that the rough sailors were not unmoved, and Raymond's eyes alone were dry from among our crew. He lay in that blessed calm which convalescence always induces, enjoying in secure tranquillity his liberty and reunion with her whom he adored. Perdita at length subdued a burst of passion, and rose. She looked round for Clara, the child frightened, not recognizing her father, and neglected by us, had crept to the other end of the boat. She came at her mother's call. Perdita presented her to Raymond. Her first words were, Beloved, embrace our child. Come hither, sweet one, said her father. Do you not know me? She knew his voice, and cast herself in his arms with half-bashful but uncontrollable emotion. Perceiving the weakness of Raymond, I was afraid of ill consequences from the pressure of the crowd on his landing. But they were awed as I had been, at the change of his appearance. The music died away, the shouts abruptly ended. 
the soldiers had cleared a space in which a carriage was drawn up. He was placed in it. Perdita and Clara entered with him, and his escort closed round it. A hollow murmur, akin to the roaring of the near waves, went through the multitude. They fell back as the carriage advanced, and fearful of injuring him they had come to welcome. By loud testimonies of joy they satisfied themselves with bending in a low salaam as the carriage passed. It went slowly along the road of the Piraeus, passed by antique temple and heroic tomb, beneath the craggy rock of the citadel. The sound of the waves was left behind. That of the multitude continued at intervals, suppressed and hoarse, and though in the city the houses, churches, and public buildings were decorated with tapestry and banners, though the soldiery lined the streets and the inhabitants in thousands were assembled to give him hail, the same solemn silence prevailed. The soldiery presented arms, the banners veiled, many a white hand waved a streamer, and vainly sought to discern the hero in the vehicle, which, closed and encompassed by the city guards, drew him to the palace allotted for his abode. Raymond was weak and exhausted, yet the interest he perceived to be excited on his account filled him with proud pleasure. He was nearly killed with kindness. It is true the populace retained themselves, but there arose a perpetual hum and bustle from the throng round the palace, which added to the noise of fireworks, the frequent explosion of arms, the tramp to and fro of horsemen and carriages, to which effervescence he was the focus, retarded his recovery. So he retired a while to Eleusis, and here rest and tender care added each day to the strength of our invalid. The zealous attention of Perdita claimed the first rank in the causes which induced his rapid recovery, but the second was surely the delight he felt in the affection and goodwill of the Greeks. We are said to love much those whom we greatly benefit, Raymond had fought and conquered for the Athenians. He had suffered on their account, peril, imprisonment, and hardship. Their gratitude affected him deeply, and he inly vowed to unite his fate forever to that of a people so enthusiastically devoted to him. Social feeling and sympathy constituted a marked feature in my disposition. In early youth the living drama acted around me, drew me heart and soul into its vortex. I was now conscious of a change. I loved, I hoped, I enjoyed. But there was something besides this. I was inquisitive as to the internal principles of action of those around me, anxious to read their thoughts justly, and forever occupied in divining their inmost mind. All events at the same time that they deeply interested me arranged themselves in pictures before me. I gave the right place to every personage in the group, the just balance to every sentiment. This undercurrent of thought often soothed me amidst distress and even agony. It gave ideality to that from which, taken in naked truth, the soul would have revolted. It bestowed pictorial colours on misery and disease, and not unfrequently relieved me from despair and deplorable changes. This faculty, or instinct, was now roused. I watched the reawakened devotion of my sister, Clara's timid but concentrated admiration of her father, and Raymond's appetite for renown, and sensitiveness to the demonstrations of affection of the Athenians. Attentively perusing this animated volume, 
I was the less surprised at the tale I read on the new-turned page. The Turkish army were at this time besieging Rodosto, and the Greeks hastening their preparations and sending each day reinforcements were on the eve of forcing the enemy to battle. Each people looked on the coming struggle as that which would be to a great degree decisive, as, in case of victory, the next step would be the siege of Constantinople by the Greeks. Raymond, being somewhat recovered, prepared to reassume his command in the army. Perdita did not oppose herself to his determination. She only stipulated to be permitted to accompany him. She had set down no rule of conduct for herself, but for her life she could not have opposed his slightest wish, or do other than acquiesce cheerfully in all his projects. One word in truth had alarmed her more than battles or sieges, during which she trusted Raymond's high command would exempt him from danger. That word, as yet it was, not more to her, was plague. This enemy to the human race had begun early in June to raise its serpent head in the shores of the Nile. Parts of Asia, not usually subject to this evil, were infected. It was in Constantinople, but as each year that city experienced a like visitation, small attention was paid to those accounts, which declared more people to have died there already than usually made up the accustomed prey of the whole of the hotter months. However it might be, neither plague nor war could prevent Perdita from following her lord, or induce her to utter one objection to the plans which he proposed, to be near him, to be loved by him, to feel him again her own, was the limit of her desires. The object of her life was to do him pleasure. It had been so before, but with a difference. In past times, without thought or foresight, she had made him happy, being so herself, and in all questions of choice consulted her own wishes, as being one with his. Now she sedulously put herself out of the question, sacrificing even her anxiety for her health and welfare to a resolve not to oppose any of his desires. Love of the Greek people, appetite for glory, and hatred of the barbarian government under which he had suffered even to the approach of death, stimulated him. He wished to repay the kindness of the Athenians, to keep alive the splendid associations connected with his name, and to eradicate from Europe a power which, while every other nation advanced in civilization, stood still a monument of antique barbarism. Having effected the reunion of Raymond and Perdita, I was eager to return to England. But his earnest request, added to awakening curiosity, and an indefinable anxiety to behold the catastrophe, now apparently at hand, in the long-drawn history of Grecian and Turkish warfare, induced me to consent to prolong until the autumn the period of my residence in Greece. As soon as the health of Raymond was sufficiently re-established, he prepared to join the Grecian camp. Here Kishan, a town of some importance, situated to the east of the Hebrus, in which Perdita and Clara were to remain until the event of the expected battle. We quitted Athens on the 2nd of June. Raymond had recovered from the gaunt and pallid looks of fever. If I no longer saw the fresh glow of youth on his matured countenance, if care had besieged his brow, and dug deep trenches in his beauty's field, if his hair slightly mingled with grey, and his look considerate even in its eagerness, 
gave signs of added years and past sufferings, yet there was something irresistibly affecting in the sight of one, lately snatched from the grave, renewing his career, untamed by sickness or disaster. The Athenian saw in him, not as heretofore the heroic boy or desperate man, who was ready to die for them, but the prudent commander, who for their sakes was careful of his life, and could make his own warrior propensities second to the scheme of conduct policy might point out. All Athens accompanied us for several miles. When he had landed a month ago, the noisy populace had been hushed by sorrow and fear. But this was a festival day to all. The air resounded with their shouts, their picturesque costume, and the gay colours of which it was composed, flaunted in the sunshine. Their eager gestures and rapid utterance accorded with their wild appearance. Raymond was the theme of every tongue, the hope of each wife, mother, or betrothed bride, whose husband, child, or lover, making a part of the Greek army, were to be conducted to victory by him. Notwithstanding the hazardous object of our journey, it was full of romantic interest as we passed through the valleys and over the hills of this divine country. Raymond was inspirited by the intense sensations of recovered health. He felt that in being general of the Athenians he filled a post worthy of his ambition, and in his hope of the conquest of Constantinople he counted on an event which would be as a landmark in the waste of ages, an exploit unequalled in the annals of man, when a city of grand historic association, the beauty of whose sight was the wonder of the world, which for many hundred years had been the stronghold of the Muslims, should be rescued from slavery and barbarism, and restored to a people illustrious for genius, civilization, and a spirit of liberty. Perdita rested on his restored society, on his love, his hopes and fame. Even as a sybarite on a luxurious couch, every thought was transport, each emotion bathed, as it were, in a congenial and balmy element. We arrived at Kishan on the 7th of July. The weather during our journey had been serene. Each day before dawn we left our night's encampment, and watched the shadows as they retreated from hill and valley, and the golden splendour of the sun's approach. The accompanying soldiers received, with national vivacity, enthusiastic pleasure from the sight of beautiful nature. The uprising of the star of day was hailed by triumphant strains, while the birds, heard by snatches, filled up the intervals of the music. At noon we pitched our tents in some shady valley, or embowering wood among the mountains, while a stream prattling over pebbles induced grateful sleep. Our evening march, more calm, was yet more delightful than the morning restlessness of spirit. If the band played, involuntarily they chose airs of moderated passion. The farewell of love, or lament at absence, was followed and closed by some solemn hymn, which harmonized with the tranquil loveliness of evening, and elevated the soul to grand and religious thought. Often all sounds were suspended, that we might listen to the nightingale, while the fireflies danced in bright measure, and the soft cooling of the aziolo spoke of fair weather to the travellers. Did we pass a valley? Soft shades encompassed us, and rocks tinged with beauteous hues. If we traversed a mountain, Greece a living map was spread beneath. Her renowned pinnacles cleaving the ether, her rivers threading in silver line the fertile land. Afraid almost to breathe, we English travellers survey with ecstasy this splendid landscape. 
so different from the sober hues and melancholy graces of our native scenery. When we quitted Macedonia, the fertile but low plains of Thrace afforded fewer beauties, yet our journey continued to be interesting. An advance guard gave information of our approach, and the country people were quickly in motion to do honour to Lord Raymond. The villages were decorated by triumphal arches of greenery by day, and lamps by night. Tapestry waved from the windows, the ground was strewed with flowers, and the name of Raymond, joined to that of Greece, was echoed in the aviv of the peasant crowd. When we arrived at Kishon, we learned that on hearing of the advance of Lord Raymond and his detachment, the Turkish army had retreated from Rodosto, but meeting with a reinforcement they had retrod their steps. In the meantime, Argyropilo, the Greek commander-in-chief, had advanced so as to be between the Turks and Rodosto. A battle, it was said, was inevitable. Perdita and her child were to remain at Kishan. Raymond asked me if I would not continue with them. Now by the fells of Cumberland, I cried, by all of the vagabond and poacher that appertains to me, I will stand at your side, draw my sword in the Greek cause, and be hailed as a victor along with you. All the plain from Kishan to Rodosto, a distance of sixteen leagues, was alive with troops, or with the camp followers, all in motion at the approach of a battle. The small garrisons were drawn from the various towns and fortresses, and went to swell the main army. We met baggage wagons, and many females of high and low rank returning to Fairy Ocetian, there to wait the issue of the expected day. When we arrived at Rodosto, we found that the field had been taken, and the scheme of the battle arranged. The sound of firing, early on the following morning, informed us that advanced posts of the armies were engaged. Regiment after regiment advanced, their colours flying and bands playing. They planted the cannon on the tumuli, sole elevations in this level country, and formed themselves into column and hollow square, while the pioneers threw up small mounds for their protection. These, then, were the preparations for a battle, nay, the battle itself, far different from anything the imagination had pictured. We read of centre and wing in Greek and Roman history. We fancy a spot, plain as a table, and soldiers small as chessmen, and drawn forth, so that the most ignorant of the game can discover science and order in the disposition of the forces. When I came to the reality, and saw regiments file off to the left far out of sight, fields intervening between the battalions, but a few troops sufficiently near me to observe their motions. I gave up all idea of understanding, even of seeing a battle, but attaching myself to Raymond, attended with intense interest to his actions. He showed himself collected, gallant, and imperial. His commands were prompt, his intuition of the events of the day, to me miraculous. In the meantime the cannon roared, the music lifted up its enlivening voice at intervals, and we on the highest of the mounds I mentioned, too far off to observe the fallen sheaves which death gathered into his storehouse, beheld the regiments now lost in smoke, now banners and staves peering above the cloud, while shout and clamour drowned every sound. Early in the day Argyropolo was wounded dangerously, and Raymond assumed the command of the whole army. 
he made few remarks, till, on observing through his glass the sequel of an order he had given, his face clouded for a while with doubt, became radiant. The day is ours, he cried. The Turks fly from the bayonet, and then swiftly he dispatched his aides de camp to command the horse to fall on the routed enemy. The defeat became total, the cannon ceased to roar, the infantry rallied, and horse pursued the flying Turks along the dreary plain. The staff of Raymond was dispersed in various directions to make observations and bear commands. Even I was dispatched to a distant part of the field. The ground on which the battle was fought was a level plain, so level that from the tumuli you saw the waving line of mountains and the wide-stretched horizon. Yet the intervening space was unvaried by the least irregularity, save such undulations as resembled the waves of the sea. The whole of this part of Thrace had been so long a scene of contest that it had remained uncultivated, and presented a dreary barren appearance. The order I had received was to make an observation of the direction which a detachment of the enemy might have taken from a northern tumulus. The whole Turkish army, followed by the Greek, had poured eastward. None but the dead remained in the direction of my side. From the top of the mound I looked far round. All was silent and deserted. The last beams of the nearly sunken sun shot up from behind the far summit of Mount Athos. The sea of Marmora still glittered beneath its rays, while the Asiatic coast beyond was half hid in the haze of a low cloud. Many a cask and bayonet and sword fallen from unnerved arms reflected the departing ray. They lay scattered far and near. From the east, a band of ravens, old inhabitants of the Turkish cemeteries, came sailing along towards their harvest. The sun disappeared. This hour, melancholy yet sweet, has always seemed to me the time when we are most naturally led to commune with higher powers. Our mortal sternness departs and gentle complacency invests the soul. But now, in the midst of the dying and the dead, how could a thought of heaven or sensation of tranquillity possess one of the murderers? During the busy day, my mind had yielded itself a willing slave to the state of things presented to it by its fellow beings. Historical association, hatred of the foe, and military enthusiasm had held dominion over me. Now I looked on the evening star, as softly and calmly it hung pendulous in the orange hues of sunset. I turned to the coarse-strewn earth, and felt ashamed of my species. So perhaps were the placid skies, for they quickly veiled themselves in mist, and in this change assisted the swift disappearance of twilight usual in the south. Heavy masses of cloud floated up from the southeast, and red and turbid lightning shot from their dark edges. The rushing wind disturbed the garments of the dead, and was chilled as it passed over their icy forms. Darkness gathered round, the objects about me became indistinct. I descended from my station, and with difficulty guided my horse so as to avoid the slain. Suddenly I heard a piercing shriek. A form seemed to rise from the earth. It flew swiftly towards me, sinking to the ground again as it drew near. All this passed so suddenly that I, with difficulty, reined in my horse so that it should not trample on the prostrate being. The dress of this person was that of a soldier, but the bared neck and arms and the continued shrieks discovered a female thus disguised. I dismounted to her aid, while she, 
with heavy groans, and her hand placed on her side resisted my attempt to lead her on. In the hurry of the moment I forgot that I was in Greece, and in my native accents endeavoured to soothe the sufferer. With wild and terrific exclamations did the lost, dying Evadne, for it was she, recognise the language of her lover. Pain and fear from her wound had deranged her intellects, while her piteous cries and feeble efforts to escape penetrated me with compassion. In wild delirium she called upon the name of Raymond. She exclaimed that I was keeping him from her, while the Turks with fearful instruments of torture were about to take his life. Then again she sadly lamented her hard fate, that a woman with a woman's heart and sensibility should be driven by hopeless love and vacant hopes to take up the trade of arms and suffer beyond the endurance of man privation, labour and pain, the while her dry hot hands press mine and her brow and lips burn with consuming fire. As her strength grew less, I lifted her from the ground, her emaciated form hung over my arm, her sunken cheek rested on my breast. In a sepulchral voice she murmured, This is the end of love, yet not the end. And frenzy lent her strength as she cast her arm up to heaven. There is the end, there we meet again. Many living deaths have I borne for thee, O Raymond, and now I expire thy victim. By my death I purchase thee. Lo, the instruments of war, fire, the plague of my servitors. I dared, I conquered them all, till now. I have sold myself to death, with the sole condition that thou shouldst follow me. Fire, war, and plague, unite for thy destruction. O oh, my Raymond, there is no safety for thee. With a heavy heart I listened to the changes of her delirium. I made her a bed of cloaks. Her violence decreased and a clammy dew stood on her brow as the paleness of death succeeded to the crimson of fever. I placed her on the cloaks. She continued to rave of her speedy meeting with her beloved in the grave, of his death nigh at hand. Sometimes she solemnly declared that he was summoned. Sometimes she bewailed his hard destiny. Her voice grew feebler, her speech interrupted, a few convulsive movements, and her muscles relaxed. The limbs fell, no more to be sustained. One deep sigh, and life was gone. I bore her from the near neighborhood of the dead. Wrapped in cloaks, I placed her beneath a tree. Once more I looked on her altered face. The last time I saw her she was eighteen, beautiful as poet's vision splendid as a sultana of the east twelve years had passed twelve years of change sorrow and hardship her brilliant complexion had become worn and dark her limbs had lost the roundness of youth and womanhood her eyes had sunk deep crushed and overworn the hours had drained her blood and filled her brow with lines and wrinkles with shuddering horror i veiled this monument of human passion and human misery I heaped over her all of flags and heavy accoutrements I could find, to guard her from birds and beasts of prey, until I could bestow on her a fitting grave. Sadly and slowly I stemmed my course from among the heaps of slain, and guided by the twinkling lights of the town, at length reached Rodosto. End of Volume 2 Chapter 1 
Thank you once again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. You can find us online at Black Clock Audio Tales on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Meet up with us at pgttcm.com. Find out what's going on with this and other podcasts by Badger Drift Studios, which is where we record this in beautiful North Portland. If you want to be on a show, if you have a book that you would like to have reviewed, if you want to be on Welcome to Portland, eat charcuterie and drink beer in the studio while learning how to podcast, I can accommodate that. But you have to take the first step by going to pgttcm.com and submitting. Send us a link to your stories. Become friends with us on Facebook at uh, pgttcm or Black Clock Audio Tales. And pgttcm, of course, is short for The People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos, our monthly show at the end of every month on Tuesday, we have PGTTCM. Thank you so much for listening. Edited by D.B. Spitzer. Music by Kevin McLeod, as always. Thank you. <laughs>